0: Hi, I'm Louise and I'm Camille, your host of the Feminist Book Chat Paris, a podcast that explores both feminist literature and feminist issues, past and present. Dr. Brittany Cooper is a writer, teacher and public speaker, as well as Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. She is co-founder of the popular Crunk Feminist Collective blog, and she is also a contributing writer for Cosmopolitan and a former contributor to Salon. She has released two books, Beyond Respectability, The Intellectual Thought of Race, Women, Women, Gender and Sexuality in American History, and she's edited the Crunk Feminist Collection in January 2017, along with Susanna M. Morris and Robin M. Boylan. When it came to planning the books for early 2019 Shakespeare and Company sessions, we both wanted a black feminist perspective. And we actually ended up with two books, Eloquent Rage, which we'll discuss today, published in 2018, and Women, Race and Class, published in 1981.
1: In this book, Brittany Cooper retraces her life and all aspects of black condition into their society, Where as a black woman, owning your anger and making it a superpower is a reasonable political answer to the black social condition and what black people endure within the U.S. society. In other words, considering black history, our rage and anger are the most appropriate and empowering response tools when well managed. She is clear on the point that black feminism is an entity and all types of feminists can't obviously reconciliate for several interesting reasons that she'll explain. So when it comes to the title, she explains where it comes from early in the book. One of her students, one responded to her speech saying this is the most eloquent rage I've ever heard. Britney Cooper was initially offended, responding, I am not hungry, I am very passionate, before understanding how powerful it could be to own one's anger. In short, the author aims through eloquent phrase to equip black women and anybody who struggles in owning their anger to tell it's okay. It gives us clarity. We can be angry and still be rocking our world and not be at the mercy of our anger. So,
0: let's go. So, the first thing I wanted to talk about was chapter 5, which is called Bag Lady, and that's on page 99 of the hardback edition. So the top line message of this chapter is to help black women reduce the load that they carry around instead of continually policing them on it. In this chapter, Brittany Cooper makes sure that we familiarise ourselves with the names of the women who have been killed by American cops. And actually, I realised as I was reading that she needed to do this work for us uh, because it's predominantly black men um, who are, when they're shot by cops, who make the headlines more than black women. Mm-hmm. She also talks in this chapter about intersectionality, abortion rights amongst black women, as well as a price that black women pay when they buy into respectability politics. So the chapter opens on Sandra Bland, a 20-year-old black woman who was pulled over in Walla County, Texas on July 10, 2015. She was driving to the first day of her new job as a teacher at her alma mater. On the very same day, the author herself was traveling to Harvard University on public transport to give a talk on the importance of intersectional perspectives within STEM research. One difference between these two black women is that the author was embracing the culture of dissemblance. That means pretending everything was fine with her life when in fact she was dealing with a crappy situation involving an ex-boyfriend. Whereas Sandra Bland had a vlog where she openly spoke about her struggles as a black woman in American society. Sandra Bland gets pulled over on a simple failure to signal a lane change and ends up being harassed, assaulted. And arrested by cop Brian N. Sr. All of this was recorded, by the way, by a bystander on their phone. Sandra Bland then finds herself needing $500 US dollars to bail her out of jail. Britney Cooper points out that black women aged between 18 and 64 are estimated to have a net worth of 100 US dollars. So many black women just don't have this kind of cash lying around spare for this kind of situation, for an emergency, and neither do their friends or family. On Monday 13th of July, three days after Sandra Bland was arrested, she was found dead in her cell from apparent suicide, although many believe she was murdered by rogue police officers. The arresting officer will never work in law enforcement again, but that's very little consolation against the totally unnecessary loss of Sandra Bland's life. Within this chapter, Britney Cooper also talks about Miriam Carey and Corrine Gaines, two other victims of racism.
1: And actually this story kind of like it's it's not the same story, but it makes me think of Marsha Johnson, the American gay liberation activist and you know self identified queer drag queen in the 70s in the u.s who was found dead Mm -hmm. um they said it was suicide but obviously it was the cops and so it makes me think a lot of all these stories about black people found dead Mm um and supposed suicidal Mm -hmm. when obviously they weren't and they were like full of life and
0: yeah marsha p johnson another um person who's had a very interesting life was a great activist and is worth looking into more if you're not already aware of who she is
1: and actually there's a beautiful netflix documentary if you don't know what to do off your sunday morning Mm -hmm. for example
0: um so something else in this chapter that's addressed is the is metaphoric journeys so Brittany cooper makes a really interesting comparison between writers who Contemplate the roads that they may or may not travel uh, in a metaphorical sense, with the very real danger of traveling for people of color. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Sandra Bland, who we've just talked about. But if we go back a little further to Ida B. Wells, the African American investigative journalist, educator, and an early leader in the civil rights movement. Back in 1883, Ida B. Wells was forcibly removed from the section of a train in Memphis, Tennessee purely because of the colour of her skin. And she got off the train instead of sitting in the segregated coloured car. Uh, Rosa Parks, the very well-known civil rights activist, who in 1955 refused to give her seat up to a white person and was arrested as a result. This incident actually kicked off the Montgomery bus boycott, which is still considered to be a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement. It's no surprise that the Black Lives Matter movement predominantly shuts down traffic since its first protest back in 2014. Brittany Cooper also uses traffic to illustrate intersectionality. This is a term that was first used in the late 1980s by legal scholar Kimberlé Crenshaw. So this idea of using traffic to illustrate intersectionality, which highlights how systems of power restrict social mobility for black women, thereby preventing them from moving through the social sphere as freely as they want to. And in particular, how patriarchy works to make sure that black women keep their low Mm self-esteem. In 1965, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a white guy, by the way, wrote a report called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, in which he encouraged black men to reclaim their rightful place of breadwinners within u- black U.S. communities. this sent a very clear message that having a female-led household in the black community was not allowed, thus shaming black women. And it's something that continues in the 21st century, as more than 70% of black households in the U.S. are female-led. That's a, st- a statistic I didn't know.
1: Oh, my God, yes. And this is something we'll go further on when we'll read uh, Angela Davis from In Race and Class. Yeah she so goes on this part and it's very interesting um i think i'll jump to uh just a bit before chapter three strong female lead on page 40 um so first part she talks about childhood racism and she starts with a sentence that I, I'd like to quote. She says, I have a complicated relationship with white women. Um, it's, it's a chapter she calls strong female lead. And it doesn't say much, but it says a lot in the same time. Yeah. In fact, the more we go through the chapter, the more we realize no other words could sum up this trench feeling and relationship she has with white women. So as she grows up from a child to a teenager, she has, like we all did, some strong female leaders that inspired her in some ways and shaped her beliefs. And it happens that most of them are white, of course. And she said very justly, how can an avowed black feminist be in love with imagined world in which white girls are at the center of everything. Mm-hmm. So at the same time as her fictive white female toward TV shows and books are white, so are the majority of a female friend at school. But unlike fiction, their prob- their problematic behavior forces her to face the reality of racism. So starting at the age of eight years old, she's called uh, dirty n-word for the very first time by one of her classmates and this expression of racism sadly feels like a rite of passage Mm. in many black people's life.
0: Yeah and I think what both angered and upset me about this horrible situation is that once again all the heavy lifting was left at the door of the black community and in this case specifically black women because Eight-year-old Brittany Cooper didn't even understand the word, the N-word, the the word that she was being called. She had to go home and ask her mum, who then had to explain it to her. And, you know, the little girl who called her this name at school most likely didn't understand the full significance of the word, but she had heard it somewhere, and she repeated it. And I feel like this is something that uh, people of colour have to just deal with, like you said, a rite of passage. It's mm-hmm. just something that they have to put up with when it's it's ignorance, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is a price that young Britney Cooper had to pay because she was bright, she was uh, academically gifted. She showed potential, like to be in that white space, this is the crap that she had to put up with. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. So in this chapter, the examples are multiple and still Britney Cooper tolerates them as friends yeah. because at that point she wasn't fully aware of how much these acts reflected the behavior of adults and society in general. Aside from childhood, um, racism, she talks about hair condition, which is also racism in many ways. She talks about black hair condition, something that will get back in the chapter orchestrated furry. Um, So as she grows up amongst her white friends, she was obviously forced to confront the hair difference. Mm. So she explains the process of getting your black hair done as the first lesson black girls learn about how much effort it takes to face a white world so she says that ability to have a world that is centered on the prerogative of white femininity to command someone to stop pulling and tugging so hard upon request is so far from the truth of so many black girls lives
0: yeah so that's when she goes to the sleepover isn't it and she's the only black girl so she brushes their hair with the same hand that is used on her which white people would consider heavy-handed and again yeah as you've just said it's that white privilege their hair doesn't need to be handled it can be pushed it can be brushed delicately and I think for me that feeds into that whole white version of femininity that is delicate and fragile and gentle.
1: Exactly. And I think the misrepresentation of black character, but also of black hair, most specifically, is something we need to shed a light on. Uh, Something that we will, by the way, be focusing in an upcoming podcast episode. So, no spoiler, but... um, as it's important for us to explore these issues by listening to the people who actually are concerned. A special guest will be on for this. Yeah. So uh, next part about intersectionality, Lou talked to you about it um, uh, just before. Uh, She defines strong female leads as follows. Before we fully learn to love ourselves, all people of color in the United States learn that we are supporting characters and spectators in the collective story of white people's life. The story we watch and read asks us to put aside their whiteness and relate to their very universal human struggle around conflict with the world, the self and other. The problem is that only the experience of white people are treated as universal. Mm. So yes, strong female leads are important and give strength to the collective spirit of womanhood, but we live in a world with predominantly white female leads, and this is where intersectional feminism gets all its matter. As a black woman, not only are you confronted with your your condition as a woman, but also as your skin color. So it's it's not only a
0: matter of gender, but also of race, right? of course
1: and because sexism and racism meet and grow together and the sexism you face as a white person won't be the same as the one you face when you're black and this is
0: very important for people to understand that and i think that segues really well into chapter 8 which is called white girl tears this is on page 171 so it's this chapter focuses on white women placing race above gender um yeah in this chapter britney cooper basically lays into white feminists in america and their repeated refusal to bring together feminists of all races putting race before gender something that white women clearly did in the last presidential election is something black women have been accused of doing for decades but as the author points out that is more of a survival instinct thing as opposed to shutting out deserving people with black women being treated and considered as second-class citizens denied the same ways of femininity that are reserved just for white women they have to look out for each other and raise each other up because white women are not doing it for them another really great book recommendation which we'll link to in the show notes is why I'm no longer talking to white people about race so uh, what are white girl tears exactly? The author explains this as, uh, when white women have done something racist, then get called out on it by the victim. The knee-jerk reaction is often to cry, and, you know, there's something about white female vulnerability that gets men, no matter their race, running to protect them. I love the fact that the author opted for what she describes as a very black brunch in Brooklyn on the day of the Women's March, on January 21st, 2017, Whilst making clear how important it is to her that feminism is a multiracial project, she wants a unified front of women, but she was also really annoyed by the idea of marching with predominantly white women in pink pussy hats, who didn't have the first clue of intersectionality. Uh, Brittany Cooper spells out the role that white women have played in state violence, particularly towards black men, which reached new heights after the Civil War, so that's the period between 1861 and 1865 in the US. There's a very murky history of white women accusing black men of rape, or allowing their white husbands, partners, to cry rape on their behalf. When, in fact, there were often cases when white women were having consensual sex with black men. Mm -hmm. So the threat of rape from a white woman became a very deadly threat for both black men and black communities that had to suffer the very violent consequences of these accusations. As the author says, disregard for the bodily autonomy of black women grew in direct proportion to the social valuation of white femininity. Though this has also been true during slavery, after the Civil War, white men used white femininity as an excuse to terrorise newly freed black men and women through lynching and rape. If we fast forward and you think of the present day state of feminism in the States and in the UK, and I think maybe a little bit over here in France as well, there's been a clear rejection of that sexual chastity, Mm -hmm. uh, the purity, the monogamy expected of women from men. But the white feminist leap towards solidarity is somehow never made. The author points out that both black women and white women's sexual agency is always tied up in white male domination. Although, to be clear, the level of violence and terror exists for both black and white women, it is not of equal scope. There's a clear pattern of the white patriarchy. Regulating white women's sexual desires, not only by controlling their bodies, but additionally by criminalizing black men and diminishing black women. I think for me, I think this must be particularly stomach-churning for black women, because white women sure do have a terrible habit of appropriating black culture, I'm thinking first and foremost music, to further their own careers or profiles. I'm talking Taylor Swift's music video for Wildest Dreams. I'm thinking Katy Perry's Corn with Front Edges geled Down for her This Is How We Do music video. Miley Cyrus, Lily Allen, Iggy Azalea. All these women have imitated, then discarded the idioms of hip-hop music as soon as it has served its purpose. And this, for me, is the epitome of white privilege. Yeah. As the author says so well herself on page 177, white people don't share, they take over, they colonize, they claim shit as their own and then accuse others of being territorial and retrograde for pointing out these aggressive borrowing practices that shape white culture. I'm going to wrap up this section pretty quickly, but she also goes on to talk about problematic black men Namely, Bill Cosby, who was very much held up as a poster boy of black male success in the predominantly white world of comedy and sitcom, would very much advise that you read that. And she also says some really insightful things about the politics of interracial dating between black men and white women specifically, and also the resentment that black men have for black women, which for me as a reader were very eye-opening, so you may want to check that out. It's more towards the end of the chapter. Over to you, Kimmy.
1: Thanks. Um, well, I think the, the, the last, next and last chapter we're going to go over um, is chapter seven. It's called Orchestrated Fury. It's on page 148. So, she explains how the way Michelle did her hair and dressed on her last official engagement as a first lady, passing on the role to, Michelle, to Melania Trump, said everything about a refusal, which I'll get to later. So, black women have been educated to look proper and classy and not paying attention to themselves explicitly means refusing the codes. Quoting Brittany Cooper, rage is a kind of refusal to be made a fool of to be silenced, to be shamed, or to stand for anybody's bullshit. This is a refusal of the lie that black women's anger, in the face of routine, everyday's injustice, is not legitimate. Black women's rage is a way of looking this mischaracterization in the face and responding, you got me all the way fucked up. So back to respectability politics. Um, Britney Cooper says very justly. Initially, respectability politics was a survival strategy in the face of the massive potential for violence. I think the authors she talks about at some point, Audrey Lord, just resumes very well the old chapter, and I totally get why she'd quote her to entitle this chapter as "orchestrated mm-hmm. fury." She says in her essay called The Use of Anger, Women Responding to Racism. Women of color in America have grown up within a symphony of anger at being silenced and chosen. And I say symphony rather than cacophony because we have had to learn to orchestrate those furries so that they do not tear us apart. How big is that? I mean... I really feel like a chess game, like where strategy and diplomacy and respect of the hierarchy rules the game. So I hadn't read Audrey Lord previously, but I went out and bought her essay collection after reading these lines. And I definitely trust Brittany Cooper on her author recommendation anyway. Um, so she explains at some point where um, a mother wants answered back to the preacher saying no to what he was preaching
0: yeah this was the part where he he basically the preacher was basically shaming black mothers on how they were raising their children to not be good enough to not be well treated enough Uh, like not well treated enough sorry but to be like well behaved enough etc and her mother was so badass like her mother I love her mother when you read about her throughout the whole book she just sounds amazing and yeah her mother was able to stand up to this preacher and just say no and call him out on the words that he was quoting I believe from the bible
1: yeah I think her mother definitely played a role on how Britney Cooper got super amazing super amazing Um, So this man, the preacher, is another perfect example of what mansplaining is as he tells the mother what proper motherhood is and how black mothers should be. And as the author points out, the worst part is that men doing this really think they help. Mm. And I don't know if you guys read Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit. It's a selection of essays that we read during an early book session. I think you should definitely yeah. buy this book. It's, it's really interesting. Um, back on rage or respectability, I feel like the author tries to point that you have to pick your side of the game. So after explaining what rage means for her and what respectability politics are, the author is clear, rage and respectability, politics, can't exist in the same space. Mm. She says, quite justly in my opinion, because respectability is a rage management project, those invested in black respectability are often deeply uncomfortable in black rage. So respectability tells us that staying alive matters more than protecting one's dignity. Black rage says that living without dignity is no life at all. So to be clear, Black living and black surviving matters. How powerful is Britney Cooper? I She's mean, I know, I'm sorry, but She's her capacity the main, yeah. of using with such eloquence and measure is just mind blowing. Yeah. So yes, she is mad and yes, she is angry and she declares it with a shame or fear. But she also is very lucid on how she's also part of this system and respectability. Uh, just a bit like um, Maggie Nelson could say in the Argonauts, an episode you might have listened before. She's she's true. Like we all struggle. We aren't perfect even if we're listed on it. Yeah. Um, on norms and on what surrounds us. So here Brittany Cooper's uh in eloquent phrase said I would be responsible telling people to embrace rage when I daily put on a respectable outfit and drive in a solidly middle-class car to a solidly middle-class job. So I think it just gives the reader an opportunity to see
0: clearer how heft-up the system is. Yeah, I mean, she was really she was really impressive. Again, again kind of how we said with Maggie Nelson, Brittany Cooper has PhDs, she's done all the academic research but the way that she puts it into a really coherent or easily comprehensible context, you know, like she's talking about Michelle Obama, Beyonce. um, You know, she always weaves everything in. So yeah, in daily life, pop culture, and she's doing a lot of, you know, what really impressed me about her in, in one of the chapters was she talks about doing the emotional work. Like, she is not taking her education and her position in society, in US society, for granted. She's really doing the work, you know? She's paving the way for future black women, for yeah. me, and feminists. Um, So, I think just to... You know, she ends on a really positive note, which is something that we personally appreciated. So she leaves us with, you know, a very necessary reminder to build things up and not just deconstruct and tear down. And I think her ending the book in this way, it perfectly sums up who she is. And it's a vibe that she puts across very much throughout the whole book. She advises us to challenge our rage, to build things, to build better tools with which we could smash the patriarchy. But they're tools with which we can realistically work. Um, It's really sweet. She talks about, how she struggled with her religion and feminism uh, in one of the chapters. And so she, it's very cute. She leaves us with a sort of benediction and she describes how she fulfills each of the sections. Um, So yeah, she ends in such a good way. And basically you got this, we got this, we got to stay together and stick together on this.
1: Exactly, what a good way
0: to, to end. Uh, okay, so links for books, articles, authors that we've referenced in this episode. As usual, you'll be able to find them in the show notes.
1: And for more FBC Paris news, you can follow us on Instagram at the FBC Paris. And if you've got any question for us or for our guests, feel free to tweet us at the FBC Paris. The sign up link for our fortnightly newsletter is both in our Instagram and Twitter bio.
0: Thanks for listening. Join us again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.